Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Rob. I'm gonna I'm gonna try this. Okay. Rob Van Willingen. Willingen? Perfect. Perfect. Willingen. Okay, one of those two is right. Yeah. Um, so uh, Rob, thanks for joining us today, fellow Canadian, which is a rare thing in this podcast. Uh, the Canadians are starting to come up to speed with all these concepts that we've been talking about for over a decade now. But um, uh, Rob, why don't we start with your background? Tell a little bit about your uh, your firm viewpoint. And before we do, yeah, don't yeah. jump the gun. There, we got to do the. I yeah, can, we could do it after. All do right, it. Richard, do you want to do? Who it? wants to do it, Richard? Go ahead. Another ad? Is there another ad coming? Or? <laughs> no, we just want to let everyone know that everything we talk about today should not be construed as investment advice. You know, it's four guys hanging out on a Friday afternoon live on YouTube, so this is for entertainment and information purposes only. Well, so that, what are we drinking yeah, tonight? Right. What are we drinking, Rob? What What are you having? So I have a, a really high class uh, peach neutral. Oh, oh I don't know God. if you guys, I don't know if, yeah, it's a, kind of like a white claw, but uh, a little bit different. Yeah. Is that a Canadian drink? I've never seen neutral. Yeah, it is. It must be. Yeah, it is. It's, it's yummy, nice. actually. It's low carb and stuff, too, I think. I'm drinking a nice Chianti, um, no fava beans, but. Uh, <laughs> I got new? my freestyle, my Caymanian freestyle here. You know, again, low like carb, that. low alcohol. That's right. Trying to I keep it clean. Thing. I don't have much going for me. You I have straight high... vodka over there, Richard. Yeah, well, let's call it straight <laughs> vodka. I have high hopes for the afternoon to actually get out and do some sports. So uh, I'm keeping oh. it clean today, boys. Oh, oh yeah, you're here. playing uh, soccer with the, with the Latin Americans, right? With the yeah, other that, Spanish-speaking Latin Americans. Yeah, that, that's on Sunday. Hopefully, if the rain allows for it. But uh, 
yeah, looking forward to that. I'm getting in a car and driving for three hours after this with my my kids, so I'm well, I'm just gonna ha- just gonna have one probably. A little cottage action. Yeah, yeah. A classic Canadian uh, move. Oh yeah, it's yeah. summertime. It's well, we call weekend. them cabins. Yeah, it's a long weekend. Uh, right. in, out west, we call it a cabin, not a cottage. Yeah. Where are you based out of, Rob? Uh, Calgary. Nice. We yeah. call them cabins in Newfoundland, too, where I'm from. It's just the, uh, you know, Ontario, Quebec, and BC that call them cottages. If you want, I, I got that. Homes and every other pretentious. BC I got that from too. the Pentabrit. Have you guys seen Mike Myers' latest on Netflix? No, where Rob Scarborough, the uh, the protagonist, Rob Scarborough, he's from Scarborough. It, it just he goes and does every possible Canadian mannerism in, in six episodes. <laughs> it's a classic Mike Myers uh, show, worth a watch. I think it's not as good as some of his other stuff, but it is is a Canadian. You'll enjoy it. Well, the three people that download this that are Canadian will really enjoy this Canadiana. <laughs> well, no, we got to educate the world, man. We're we're hey, spreading the love. Spreading. Have, the you, love. have you guys seen uh, Letterkenny? I haven't no. watched it. Oh, no. you got to watch that one. Yeah. Okay. That's also on Netflix, right? Yeah. I, I, uh, I don't know if it, what it's on, but it's just small town Canada, hockey players and farmers. And it's, it's ridiculous, but. Okay. Right. Kind of well, yeah. So I, um, okay. yeah, I'll just jump in. Yeah. Um, so my background is in, uh, uh, well, let me take a quick step back. Our family history is, is in the energy business in the oil and gas business, not real estate. Um, and, uh, but my background is not in energy. Uh, my background's in conventional portfolio management and, and some tech. So after university, I was bumping around the kind of tech scene in uh, Vancouver, Western, in Western Canada. And, um, I just love finance and I love markets and portfolio management and came back to Calgary. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a unique story because, um, as a as a G two in a family office, many families want G twos to go out and cut their teeth uh, before joining the family office of the family business. And I was doing my CFA, and and <clears throat> my dad, you know, he he was just like, well, why don't you just spend a summer as an analyst at at the family office, get to know the business a little bit. Um, you know, you're doing your CFA, and and I it, yeah, I never left. <laughs> So it's been 12 years now and it worked so well um, working with my dad and then now growing into, you know, a a portfolio management firm. I've just been there the whole time and it's, you don't see that too often in the family, you know, ultra high net worth family, family office space. Um, But initially we had a portfolio that would make all of us multi-asset diversification quant guys puke like <laughs> you know 90 95 percent energy uh 95 invest in what you know right canadian energy canadian junior private energy um wow. so not all of it was private but uh so we embarked on a, a plan to diversify our portfolio um and create a more institutional quality investment program um, and the other thing I would just notice at the same time, uh, Mac, so my dad, is, his name is Mac. He was, uh, one of the founding directors of AIMCO, um, and subsequently right. the chair of AIMCO. And so he was having that experience, you know, overseeing a hundred billion dollars and going back to our family office and saying, well, we need to, you know, 
buck up here and, and create a more institutional quality portfolio for ourselves. Um, yeah, and then and then due to my interest and background in technology, uh, I don't have any background in data science, but my interest in data science, we just started managing our capital in-house increasingly over time in public markets. As we got liquidity from energy and, um, and private equity. And uh, in 2016, we registered um, in Canada as you get, well, I mean, as you know, but for your listeners who aren't in Canada, we don't have the RIA system, but we registered as a PM and uh, started taking on external capital just from other family offices around Alberta uh, to manage in what was initially very rudimentary Excel-based models um, and now has, has grown significantly into a full-on uh, quant operation. Maybe I'll just stop there because I'll just yeah. I'll just keep I'll keep so, talking. So no, that's good. But let's let's take a step back for a second because I think you know you are probably one of a small. Honestly, in Canada, you're probably the first family office that attacks a problem from the perspective of creating an all weather type approach that is systematic in nature. And and it's interesting. The origins are the classic family office that I see in Canada, which is highly concentrated in the thing that the family did. Or real estate tends to be also pretty pretty important. And trying to get people off that is nearly impossible. And so um, tell us, maybe tell us how you convinced, how you got there, first of all, how you went from you personally seeing that portfolio, doing your CFA, thinking about portfolio, because the CFA doesn't, also doesn't teach you about proper portfolio construction. So how did you, how did you first get it? And then how did, how did you accomplish the, the transition? I imagine your, your father had a, uh, some of it to do, some to do with that in uh, Inco, but uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, there was no convincing, you know, it was, my dad and I have a real special relationship and, um, and it goes back a little bit to even his father, who is an oil and gas entrepreneur as well. And he used to tell me, Rob, his name was Gus. Um, he used to tell me, Rob, I know what it's like to be rich. I've been rich three times, <laughs> meaning he was an entrepreneur. He's been poor three other times. Yeah. And so he, he didn't, he never employed those kind of principles that it takes to, to properly steward significant private capital that is so hard to build um, after tax, you know, private capital is so hard to build. And um, so Mac took the opposite approach, even in his operating businesses and uh, in, in his um, investment companies, it was always risk management, risk management, risk management. And so um, it really, it really came from, from him and from both of us, but um you know, we want to steward this properly for, for our family, but for society. Um, and um, that was kind of the genesis of it. So we committed to a program where we just, no matter what the markets were doing, no matter what oil and gas was doing, no matter what markets were doing, every year we'd peel off a certain percentage out of energy and into broad markets. And initially we were allocating to other managers um, and for a, lo a long list of reasons, just got frustrated with the conventional stock picking narrative based approach. Um, and that was kind of the birth of the, uh, of the quant, of the quant philosophy. What year was that? Just out of curiosity. I would say back 
uh, during the, I remember specifically like the tape, the taper tantrum 2013, I would say where we'd spent four years or so we've gone through the financial crisis, spent four years with this goal of diversification. And then, and then subsequently around that time, we, we started thinking more about internal management and, and the quant. Um, but it wasn't until a number of years later that it got, we had enough confidence and sophistication to, to actually uh, take the plunge. And this began when you guys were still a single family yeah. office uh, yeah. and you guys opened up to become a multifamily office once you had the uh, framework somewhat established. Yeah, we're not a multifamily office. Um, so, but yes, yes. So that was when we were a single family office, just managing our own capital. Um, and the reason that I, I say that uh, is that we, we only offer our investment management process to other to, to third um, third party investors. We don't do, we got enough problems with our own family. We don't need to, to offer out, you know, um, state planning and, philanthropy and personal services private jet concierge programs no no no, you don't do any of that damn it you almost had my money (laughs) yeah right okay so so you get into so you get into diversification but did you get into risk parity right away when you like was it risk parity or was it just broad management was it tactical asset allocation first and then risk parity how did you come about that so I always have, uh, from going way back, um, I always loved the concept of risk parity and and return stacking, as Hofstein would would call it. Now Hofstein. we call it, yeah. Or you guys, Hofstein and Gordillo, both my you, friend. Both of you, That's what, shame, whatever. Man. You're all just kind of a, you're all just kind of this herd on FinTwit. He's stealing. Why He's you? just, yeah. All right, That's, he deserves it. He's been talking Triggered? about more than you. Very triggered. Rodrigo came up with a name, so now you've you, you've just really aggravated. Oh, perfect. The now we can get into it. Now we can yeah, get into it. Exactly. Um, and so, but it's much more complex. And and so Mac, uh, so our first strategy was tactical asset allocation, or as you'd call it, adaptive asset allocation. That was our first strategy, and and then risk parity, uh, we launched a year or so, a couple of years later. Um, but it's really that risk optimization engine we built. We now apply it to obviously our risk parity strategy, but also to our commodity strategy and our multi-asset Asia strategy. So that's, and then GTAA kind of sits on the side with a separate set of trend and momentum and, and a separate set of algorithms, but it's really that risk optimization engine. That's, that's the core of our strategies now. I'm still curious about, I want to dig a little deeper into um, the transition from concentrated private market energy oriented portfolio to diversified multi-asset because this really has been over the entire duration of all of our careers i think one of the most interesting psychological challenges which is the path to getting rich is literally the opposite of the path to staying rich right the the only way really to get very wealthy is by taking one or more very concentrated bets that happen to pay off, right? Um, Whereas the only way to stay wealthy is to diversify your portfolio against all of the risks that might cause wealth to deteriorate either in nominal terms or in real terms over the long term, right? And 
so many investors who got rich by by investing all of their money and resources and time in a business that paid off think that the the way to sort of stay rich is to continue to invest in private businesses and typically private businesses in their community or in their province or their country, et cetera, through private equity type deals. So I, I, I want to dig into more of the thought process that allowed you in, in your family to kind of make that leap. I mean, I always say nobody goes to God on prom night, right? So it's typically crisis necessitates change, right? So a really, really negative, bad, scary experience precipitates some kind of rethinking and and a shift in direction is is there anything you could point to or is that just way off the mark for you and your family well i think it was the financial crisis and and then mac like aimco was formed just before the financial crisis and into the teeth of the financial crisis and um and so mac went through that and came out of it thinking holy hell like we you know we need to start thinking more serious that i think that was the, the kind of the, the come to jesus moment mm-hmm. yep um and i mean you hit the nail on the head early on in our um in our internal investment committee meetings uh we had a quote like the skills required to uh to steward capital are the complete opposite of the skills required to build capital like we had that and and we still talk about that with yeah. our investors, and and it's it's true. It's it's very much true, and um, and that's why you see so many blowups, and particularly in our neck of the woods. For anyone listening who doesn't know what Calgary is or Alberta, you know we're we're all energy here. It's all energy all the time. It has been. Now it's changing in tech ecosystem, and but um, and the philosophy here is always very entrepreneurial, which is fantastic, but. Um, even when energy markets started collapsing in in 2014, um, we would our our you know we'd have a meeting with a family, and they would say, "Well, we can't sell here because we're at the bottom right the the bottom right of this <laughs> chart, and we own 100 million dollars of this company. We can't sell here." And then it would go a little bit further. Well, we can't sell here, and then it would go a little bit further. Well, we can't sell here. And that's like that that bias, right? You look at that chart being framed and you're in the bottom right-hand corner of the chart and you think, oh, I can't sell at the lows. And your brain just frames it that way. And then when, when times are good, you don't want to diversify because they're so good, you're making so much money. <laughs> but you don't want to diversify out of things that have been treating you so well. Yeah, why would I diversify with, like, you know, worsify my portfolio with yeah. shitty returns? My, <laughs> my best like line grandpa. there had had a bit of a vision there when he was half i guess half tongue-in-cheek alluding to the fact that he had made a fortune three times and then lost it i guess two because he kept the third one but so i guess he had some of the uh, understanding that concentrated risk makes and breaks the bank and so did that help in sort of getting the family on board with the idea that diversification was the way forward to, to stewarding the generational wealth side of things? Uh, not through Gus. So bless his heart. Uh, he actually ended his life with very, very little. And so he never really learned that lesson, but Mac sure learned it through that experience with watching with, his dad, yeah. I guess, make and break. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's amazing with, the, with regards to the the behavioral bias. It, it's my whole career. It's been the same. You know, let me let me watch what you're doing, and and when when we start seeing, I want to see how it does in a bear market, and then I'll decide. And my answer was always, so let me get this straight. You need to lose money in order to start making money. Like that's how you're going to do this. It doesn't matter. You're going to see three months of downturn, and that's going to be the decision. None of the actual live performance or backtest is enough for you to make a decision today. You need to you actually need to feel the loss before you you capitulate. And then and the of answer course, was always down. Yeah. They but then they're down it. and they don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. it, it does, it, watching the price is not enough. You really have to take the, the red pill over time and years of education, right? Well, and it's, it's just human, like it's no one's fault. It, it's just, honestly, it's just, we're, we're kind of idiots at making <laughs> decisions. Like I actually kind of believe that, you know, we're, we're really poor decision makers, I, I think. Um, in a lot of cases, especially when it comes to emotional. I mean, that maybe is obvious in the behavioral finance theory and all that, but uh, but it's just our, it's it's the human brain, right? Yeah. So, so I think ideally, a lot of, um, yeah. oh, yeah. Okay, well, I was going to say, so I think a lot of people um, have started on this same journey. I, I mean, we went on this this journey starting you know, well, well, Rod sort of was on <clears throat> a bit more of a systematic trend journey um, in the OA crisis to the benefit of his clients. And Mike and I more sort of came to Jesus, so to speak, um, after the GFC as well, in terms of wanting to, to approach markets systematically and systematic decision making and multi-asset diversification, et cetera. But um, I, I, I want to know where you, so you said you sort of started with Global Tactical, so what was the journey there? Where, like, what was sort of the, what were some of the seminal yeah. um, pieces that you read? What, what did you start with exactly? And then what motivated your, your thinking to evolve? So it all started with the conversation about active versus passive, which is a total misnomer. Um, but that's where the conversation started with Mac and I, and we'd go to these conferences and, um, talk to people about it, active versus passive. What does active mean? What does passive mean? And basically came to the conclusion that there really is no true passive um, because you're making active allocation bets. And whether you're using a stock picking approach or an index is actually significantly less consequential than your allocation. Um, this isn't really news. Your to, asset to allocation. So your, your mix of stocks and bonds your and your, yeah. your regional allocations, right? Yeah. yeah. And so we created this concept that we called global beta for the global investable market portfolio, which I know Ned Faber has talked about. And there's that seminal paper by a fellow Dutch guy. I can't remember his name, but yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we studied that that became kind of our Bible in terms of um, thinking about the world of financial markets and how to look at our portfolio. And so we kept, Matt, Matt kept saying to me, Rob, let's just, you know, dust all these fund managers and all this complexity and just own global beta. And, and, you know, that was a very attractive proposition because, you know, over five year periods, it's never posted a negative return going back to 1900. So we did a whole bunch of, we took that paper and we did a whole bunch of work on it, that concept. And, but there, at the time, uh, we were, I, I would look at that portfolio and think, well, this this portfolio and the concept is great, but it has way too much fixed income in it. 
and rates have to rise, right? And that was what, like 20, <laughs> 2014 or something like that? Yeah. Um, so regardless of, of what happened in that world and where we are now, um, that was kind of the, the genesis of, okay, we have global beta, we like global beta. As a private family investor, the risk return characteristics of that portfolio and, and in particular the huge slug of fixed income in there actually may represent a bigger risk than we think. And so we started building rules around it. And that's where essentially where trend and momentum, I started opening this whole world into trend and momentum in CTA, um, as well as what we call carry or cross asset valuation being the equity risk premium and um, as stocks start looking more expensive or less expensive relative to bonds and rates, uh, is there something there similar to a value factor, but based on the equity risk premium. So I started building rules around that. And that's really the, that was the seed um, that started that strategy. So you went, uh, you had this opinion of fixed income at the time, then the way to get away with sinning a little, as, as uh, Cliff would say, is to, allow you to have bonds as long as it didn't, you know, have, it didn't go below a certain moving average or whatever. But uh, I imagine that's how you allocate it between bonds and equities. So that's, that's bonds, equities as a global market portfolio. When did the commodity side come in? Like when did you start thinking about inflation risk in that portfolio? Um, so we, we really started looking at commodities at the same time as risk parity. So probably about 2018. And, you know, commodities, they've been in the dump for, for so long. Um, and, but we still really love them in particular. Um, uh, the more esoteric stuff, livestock, grains, softs, like we have oil and gas up to our gills. And, um, and so introducing and just seeing the effect that adding commodities has on a portfolio uh, was, is really powerful. Uh, and so we we started incorporating commods into into our strategies around around that time. And you know, in, in regards to inflation, like no one knew how, how what was coming out of COVID. You know, um, but leading up to COVID, it was rates have to rise, rates have to rise, rates have to rise, and we we're in this deflationary kind of cycle since the financial crisis and they just never would rise, never would rise, never would rise, obviously. And then finally that was just the spark. And so we've been writing and talking about inflation for about two years and the potential for inflation. And we launched our commodities strategy just shortly thereafter, which is just a carve out of our risk uh, optimized commodity bucket within risk parity. So we kind of put our money where I'm, um, I'm not, I'm not taking a victory lap here. Like, we had, you know, no one knows what's going to happen in markets and, and economics, but uh, but certainly it was a growing risk and it's turned out really well. So, I mean, so far, yeah, bit of a cap turned out really well for that strategy. There's a lot of other things going on, but yeah, right. So, so let's get into um. So one thing is the framework, right? Understanding going from you know your passive to your to your global um, to tactical, uh, adding commodities and futures and all that fun stuff. But you do have a pretty 
robust quant team under the hood. Um, how, 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 let's get into the nitty gritty here. Like you can put a risk parity portfolio together like, uh, like in Tony Robbins' book by uh, um, Ray Dalio, or you could do it in a much more thoughtful approach. So I know you guys are big into like thoughtful optimization on, on asset classes. What have you guys put together there? And how do you think about that problem? Um, we, so our, re- our two key research and data science guys have been around for almost that full five-year period, six-year period. Um, and when we went to start researching risk parity, they devoured every, everything out there on it and identified a number of problems with the existing, uh, the existing optimizations out there, whether it's CCD or um or a naive inverse vol approach or you know any of the three or four main kind of hrp um and built a, a matrix of what are the problems with each one of these uh what are the potential risks that we're missing in these models and created our own out of what we think was the, was the best were the best pieces of, of each of those models um and so we call it uh, re- recursive risk parity. So we're running it at multi- multiple levels through our portfolios. Um, and uh, we've introduced things in there that we think address the problems of the instability of covariance matrices when you when you have get over a certain number of asset classes and a whole bunch of different things like that. How to address FX was a big one um, because it truly is global. Um, uh, and we've ended up with this. We don't even call it, you know, looking back, I, w- I almost wish we'd named it something a little bit different because what we're really doing is risk budgeting and risk optimization. It's not always risk parity per se. Can you yeah. say a bit more about that? So kind of feels like it is risk, like from just hearing you. Well, parity like meaning, meaning equal, obviously. Uh, but in some cases, we're not actually like as we go down into the more granular parts of our model, we're not actually allocating equal risk contribution in every case. Like sometimes we're allocating 70% risk contribution between these two commodity buckets or between these two commodity co- contracts for a whole variety of reasons. So, so we have the ability to to budget and allocate that risk, and it doesn't necessarily have to be equal equal risk. That's so that's kind of tactical tilts that are overlaid atop a neutral, more equal risk contribution? Is that? Yeah, but, the ta- but it's not based, the tactical tilts aren't based on an outlook or, or anything like that. It's more like, okay, uh, because Natty is so volatile, we would have none of it in the portfolio. So we want to ch- on an equal risk basis. So we're actually going to allocate more risk to Natty just because we do want to own some of it. It's more like around kind of corner cases like that, but our model allows us to, to do that. And it's all systematic in nature. So th- yeah. there's no, you guys aren't making any discretionary calls within I guess the discretion comes in the building of those systems. Yes. Yeah. And like clustering, there's some discretion. Uh, like we have a human clustering and, and then a machine clustering program as well. Um, Can you talk more about those two things? That sounds like something that we would want to uh, dig a little deeper into. 
Yeah, so when we're defining our our asset classes, or we you know we call them clusters. Um, so if you're looking at international fixed income, North American fixed income, international equity, North American equity, commodities, inflation-linked bonds, so kind of the six or seven high-level clusters, and I've just clustered them by saying that. And so, but the reality is, with regime changes, you know, Japanese. JGBs can look really similar to treasuries over a certain kind of market in a certain period, and we actually want those clustered together for a risk budgeting exercise. But we can't see that, and so that's what that's where we actually do use machine learning is in that machine machine clustering algorithm. And ultimately, the goal is to create a more precise model that that goes does away with labels and just. Yeah. understands it from the recent data that it's uh, that it's looking at yeah. yeah that's that's how are you determining if it's more precise like what, what is what what objective are you trying to achieve yeah i mean ultimately it's achieving our volatility goal so we're targeting 15 percent um but uh, yeah it's, i mean it's a really good question i don't I don't really know. I'm sure if Ben was here, he'd spelled off about that. Um, but it's something we look at. I'm just not exactly sure how, other than, you know, wanting to take those equal bet sizes consistently, no matter what the kind of market environment is. Right. Yeah, yeah that's more yeah. for the deep quants in the team, I'm sure. Yeah, no, we've, we've um, I remember back when we were, doing a lot more of the risk budgeting stuff there's um there's merit to the idea of wanting to for example you want to have um your fixed income bucket represent 10 percent falls so you're going to target 10 percent fall for the risk for the fixed income bucket you're going to target 10 percent fall for the commodity bucket and 10 percent fall for the equity bucket mm -hmm. and then once you target those now you've got your individual market weights, you've got your sector weights, let's say we're going to sector by asset class. And then, so once you've done that, then you can, you can lever the, the full portfolio to yeah. get whatever your fall target is. And, and there was some merit to that type of method. Yep. So let's move away from, uh, from the quant side. Do you guys, ever see the world from the good old fashioned fundamental macro perspective and make some decisions there? We've built probably, I don't know, 10 different macro models and dusted every single one of them. Can you give us an uh, example? Um, yeah. So, so back in the early days when we were, um, we were talking a lot about country rotation and country allocation. You know, we had these great ideas of building macro models for each financial market ecosystem that will help to, that will help with regime detection. Like what kind of economic cycle are we in in Japan right now? What kind of economic cycle are we here? And I had these grand ideas of creating a business cycle chart for each market and, uh, you know, being able to tactically adjust based on where we are in the business cycle and <clears throat> excuse me and um 
So we would look at all the conventional macro metrics, employment markets, all the super lagged, uh, uh, infrequent data, um, trying to determine where we are in a given economic cycle. And nothing worked. Yeah, like reading tea leaves. Nothing worked. Nothing. And there isn't enough data points. It's all, it's that, all these funky lags. All this data actually came out at three because they were an hour late. And then that gave us a look ahead bias. And it just, nothing worked. And uh, so it's something that's on our long-term list to revisit, but it's just not a priority um, because um, it just doesn't seem like a suitable application for our types of models, including AI, like AI. Okay. So we know we have a AI expertise on our team. And so we've built AI models and we could go out and market that, but we don't because it's not, it's too chaotic for these types of like true AI. Like we use advanced statistical methods for certain parts of our model, but it's just too chaotic and too unpredictable for true AI in this kind of macro space and portfolio construction space. Like maybe there's applications of AI if you're trying to arb, you know, micro tick structure and a yield curve or, you know, trading, 20,000 times a day, but in our applications, like we haven't found anything um, where true AI is, works or adds value in any way. Yeah. It's not but a to your point, circuit chess game. No, it's a great buzzword. Complex. It's a great buzzword. Great buzzword. It, it sells great buzzword. and people love to hear that you have some AI or some machine learning. But I'm wondering if you're able to express some of the views that you guys have tried to model out in your global macro. Uh, uh, systems that have been dusted off over time through some of these other models effectively. So you, you can express some views in, in currencies through carry or, or so on and so forth. So, so have you found some overlap in some of the views that you wanted in global macro through these other quant models? Not really. Not really. I mean, we do some carry type stuff. Uh, but it's not really to do with macro views. It's more to do with the shape of the commodity curve or you could kind of extend that out to macro a little bit, but, but the, the short answer really is no. Right, you so guys, are, are you saying that like, oh, oh, we have the answer key here. <laughs> no, we, we, we don't use any low frequency um, data sets at the moment. Right? Right. So anything in the monthly time, time range yeah. for sure though. Um, I, I did note that AQR has updated their macro momentum paper, which uh, is a, a passing interest. I don't think it would be anywhere near the top of our research list, but I don't know. Seems there's something interesting there, I guess. So aside from sort of risk parity and, and the core diversified um, risk premium allocation, what other sleeves are, have you guys investigated and built and, and where are, you, where are you currently focused on building out some more sleeves? Um, well, when you say sleeves, like, you know, we're, we're attacking multi-asset Asia now, but it's using a similar kind of risk optimization approach just in markets that are much more difficult to access and uh, underrepresented in investor portfolios. So that, that would be our latest application. And then, um, 
we all with commodities, we just felt that the the options for commodities were so limited in terms of thoughtful products on the market. So we carved that out as well. Um, but that's really where we're at. Where where we're really at now is trying to like research has gotten way ahead of all the other parts of the organization. I'd be interested to hear your guys' views on this actually with your own your own business. But um, so we built out a client service team and they're like, well, we, we, we need to focus on client service. Like research is way out there and the other parts of the organization need to catch up. So we're really focused on uh, building out tools to increase investor tra- transparency, some um, some more some more different kinds of tools for investors to be able to do analytics on their portfolios, their comprehensive portfolios, not just what they have with us. Um, we're going through a marketing and branding rebuild. Uh, I don't know if you've looked at our website, but you probably didn't know who we were till Rod and I kind of stumbled into each other. Um, and so we're, we're kind of taking a step back from that and going back to a number of research projects that have been just sitting there waiting and need attention that we call the boneyard, all the ideas that have been dusted. Now we have more sophisticated tools and we're going to, we're going to bring, bring a lot of those back up from the dead and take a look at them with fresh eyes. I guess following up on Adam's question, uh, you've largely uh, uh, explained some of the global beta uh, approaches that you guys have taken. You've alluded to trend and momentum. You've also mentioned carry. What are some of the other, te- w- whether you want to call them sleeves or tactical tilts or nudges, what outside of the risk-managed global core are you guys investing in your core strategies? Tail. We don't really have a tail risk strategy in place. Um and somewhere, if Scott's watching this, he's just chuckling because I've kept saying it's not a priority, it's not a priority, and then all of a sudden it is. <laughs> There's that human uh, nature again. Yeah, yeah. Um, so taking a really hard look at Tail, we recently hired a data scientist uh, who's got expertise in volatility trading and experience in vol trading. So kind of taking a look at some of that, some of that type of stuff has has become much more of a priority. Um, yeah. What about I on mean, the trend and carry side? You did mention those earlier. So I'm just wondering, is are those things that you're actively deployed to? Yeah. And if so, how? And um, how have you thought about those? Yeah. So so we, it, well, it depends. So, so there's a few different kind of iterations of carry that, that we look at. One of them is is uh, based on the concept that we need to be get paid to take risk in uh, in financial markets. So as we move from risk free rates out into equity markets and credit markets, and as those premiums are are changing, we're buying and selling buying cheaper asset classes basically, and it, we see the same relationship there that we do um, with broad market valuations and long term future returns. Just in isolation. So that's what we call carry in our uh, global how do, you, how do you use strategy. it? How do you, how do you deploy it? Like what is, what are the mechanics? <clears throat> so as equity markets start look, looking more, uh, well, the simplest, the simplest example is as credit spreads widen, we start buying credit. 
So it's, it's the opposite of trend and momentum. And so, you know, if credit spreads, spreads start blowing out, we'll start lagging into credit over time because you're getting paid more. As credit spreads go to zero, like they're negative, like they're in parts of Europe, we don't own any credit just from that one set of algorithms from our carry algorithms. So that's kind of how we're implementing that piece. And then trend and momentum um, would be very, very similar to all the stuff you guys put out on ensembles. And, and uh, you know, we have a, an ensemble approach with everything we're doing, including our look back periods within our risk budgeting stuff and big fans of, of that approach. The one area that uh, the one area would be that's that's been challenged for us that, that we're looking at again would be um, trend and momentum within fixed income and as it relates to the yield curve. Like um, so long twos against fives, long fives against tens, yeah. that kind of stuff? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, so the and, carry okay, so, sorry, from an integration perspective, like are you separating the, it, let's, let's talk about your family office, right? How you, are these all separate parts or are you combining them into a single thing where you're, you have a trade blotter that just does, that combines them beforehand and then, and then spits them out? Uh, well, we have four pools. And so each of those pools has its own model totally separate from the family office, but you know, our family is in the pools along directly alongside all of our investors. Right. Not sure okay. So that, you're in yeah. all of those pools. So it, like, I'm just trying to think from a portfolio yeah. construction perspective, yeah. you have those four pools, your family invests in all those four pools and you have your risk parity. Oh, I'm trying to disaggregate is whether you've got, kept the GTAA approach or you have your risk parity and then you have your long short CTA and then you have your carry and then you have your, uh, commodity. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're very much contained within the pools. And so based on what we want in that particular pool, the, all of those strategies, like we don't have what I just described um, in terms of carry, that's only in our GTA strategy. We don't run that in risk parity uh, or commodities or anything like that. So what are the four strategies? Because I, I, I think you've hinted at them. I, I'm trying to get a sort of bird's eye view of what the four pools are and what are the different rules that are guiding each one of the four pools. So uh, our core asset allocation fund, which would be similar to your adaptive asset allocation, and that uses trend, momentum, and carry. Uh, our global risk parity strategy, which is entirely based on uh, volatility scaling in our risk budgeting engine, risk optimization engine. Commodities, so we have a commodities fund that's, that's basically a carve out of the commodity component of our risk parity pool in terms of the actual strategy that we're using to run it. And then multi-asset Asia, which is um, based on risk optimization, but focused on um, Asia X Japan. Okay, so, so let's, let's, take, uh, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and talk a bit about the family office dilemma. And you know, one of the key things that I hear from family offices all the time is tax, tax, tax. That's number one. And then we'll figure out the, the, the investment decision second. Yeah. 
Um, being active, generally speaking, is not conducive to a tax efficient strategy. So how do you how do you deal with that and how do you mitigate it, if at all? Well, we're going to move in with you guys. <laughs> Are you really? Yeah, we're coming Amen, down, brother. Let's do it. That's awesome. Here, you can drink the Caymanian booze <laughs> just with us. Um, we have tax loss harvesting. Risk parity is not that efficient from a tax perspective. We do what we can, um, but we are looking at offshoring strategies. Um, that's the, basically the only answer I have on from the tax perspective. But on the topic of family office, you know, trends and family office investing, I did want to yeah. make a couple of comments on that in general, where you know, we're still seeing this trend of moving towards an endowment model. And I described it, you know, in the context of our own family too, we want to create a more institutional quality portfolio. Um, and, you know, we're still seeing the trend of, and you mentioned it, Rod, I think at the beginning as well, buying private businesses, direct investing, venture angel, real estate, infrastructure, uh, all these privates that are, being on offer and and just the explosion of of offerings in the private space uh, and we're increasingly seeing families that that tidal wave is still in effect still happening though, so you still see that still growing happening. still happening um even though that swenson's model is what how many years old now 30 or 40 years old um and valuations, I mean, I have my own personal views, like valuations in those spaces are just as high or higher than public markets. They're but astounding. Yeah. What I was going to say is, and there has been a lot of innovation in, in those areas, but there's been very, very little innovation in the public space. Very little. And it, it would surprise, and you guys probably have experienced this, but how many large family offices are... are actually running their portfolios off the side of their desk. Like, you know, we see deals. We see deals all the time. So we're seeing, we're seeing deals. They're coming in. We're looking at this deal. Oh, this one looks good. Let's do some more work on this one. Oh, the, I don't really know that guy. You know, put that one to the side. So there's just deals coming in and in and in, and which is great and it's fun. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> you're, in, you're in. You're in with the other in the, in the uh, family office secret society guild, right? Right. So you want to be part of that crowd. It's fun. And Matt calls it the X factor where it's yeah. not fun just sitting in global beta. That's not fun. Right. And we've created these single family offices that are supposed to be a level above all that. Right. Um, so there's a ton of bias in there. Um, but that was part of, you know, the dissonance as well. When we started diversifying our portfolio was how are we making decisions? Like, and, and I know like a lot of family offices and it's all, it's this, we all face the same. How are we making these decisions? We're just going on a deal by deal basis. And we like this deal. Okay. So we're going to sell a bunch of these shares in public markets to fund it. Okay. We did that. Like, so it, it's, it, it's, it's always surprised me that with the sophistication of, um, of the market, how decisions are made. And so we created, you know, all kinds of frameworks and we have what we call our stewardship pyramid where the bottom of the pyramid is global beta. And then you go up and you add, 
Prosperity, or you add some other liquid alt, and so you tactically tilt. Maybe you think inflation is coming. So on top of global, global beta, you have a slug of commodities, and then on top of that, you have your entrepreneurial investing, and so every, and then you make targets at each one of those levels, and so it's overarching. You know how much how much you have in U.S. stocks, how much you have in U.S. Like, like our models are doing all of that work at the base of the pyramid. And as you go up the pyramid, illiquidity and complexity and cost goes up. Um, so, but but that's kind of in the background as well. Is there's been a lot of innovation in private markets and very 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 little in in public markets. I mean, aside mm-hmm. from now, everybody want everyone has a an ETF portfolio, which is fantastic. But that's probably the biggest innovation that I've seen in the last fifteen years, like in in that space. Which still baffles me as to what the major benefit of having something you can trade intraday as a long-term holder of asset classes. The only innovation is that somehow we've convinced the public that an ETF should be lower cost than a mutual fund. That's fine. Yeah. But in terms of innovation itself, it's just silly to me. You, can, you could have launched all of the specialty mutual funds as well and reduced the cost. It, it, it actually is a much more useful long-term asset allocation mechanism because you don't have to deal with the... Um, with market makers and the like, right? It's not like in the U.S. It's true innovation because you get a tax advantage. In Canada, you get you get none of that. Yep. You just get some illiquidity. So you're right. I don't think there has been innovation. In fact, you know the uh, the ETF that we launched with Horizons is is on its own right now. I expect that to change, but it's very rare to see. Even like the liquid alt space is still the same old long short equity, which is more yeah. long than short, right? So Canada is way behind the curve on innovation on the public markets, as you say. It's crazy how behind it is, yeah. um, and I think this market cycle is going to is going to change that quite drastically. Um, Rob, so, so- to, to sort of just hang back on what you were talking about, the entrepreneurial equity, right? Private equity, which back in the day everybody used to perceive it as having to command something of a discount because of the liquidity, right? That had the liquidity premium, so you had to have that. And over time, it's 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 at least in our conversations, we've seen that a lot of allocators see that as a benefit because the lack of marking to market on a daily basis, that illiquidity premium actually creates a behavioral benefit for allocators. Is this something that you've observed and, and, and how do you think that has uh, steered allocation more into the private space as opposed to the uh, simplistic uh, public equity space? I mean, I would agree. I, I don't think there is an illiquidity premium anymore. Um, I don't, and I don't think you're getting that. Pre- you're not getting really paid to to, to give up that illiqu- that liquidity anymore. Um, but it's the benefit is entirely behavioral. I would yeah. just, I would echo, but, and it is a benefit. It is a real benefit that you can't get out of something when it's down and that you're not looking at the marks every day. And initially, uh, you know, I was kind of dismissed that as like, you know, voodoo, but it is a real behavioral benefit uh, for allocators to not be in public markets. Well, why don't we, and, why don't allocators then allow us to create public market funds that simply mark on a rolling basis <laughs> right like that's cool no problem we're gonna roll we're gonna mark our holdings based on the 
past the average of the past three month marks. Yeah. Dude, but you know what? <laughs> the, the the Canadian if it's so beneficial. Canadian like what do they call whole life whole life policies, right? The, yeah. the yeah, portfolios yeah, yeah. of whole life policies are allowed to smooth the returns over seven years. Yeah. Like, public market returns <laughs> for seven years. <laughs> yeah. Right. So they always have this like They've slowly gone from an 8% every year annualized to eight and a half, to seven and a half to six, yeah. right? Yeah. A slow roll down. But it's crazy how we created this for the right players. Incentives right? and outcomes, I think, is exactly. what we're getting at. Yeah, that's, it's that's... 100% it should be. It's the Meb Faber still trying to figure out a way to lock public assets into a 10-year Ten year fund, right? If somebody leaves, yep. they, there's a massive penalty, and the unit holders get to keep it, right? So there is an disincentive to to get out at the wrong time. Uh, there's it's just too many yeah. too many rules with the regulators to allow that right now. Yeah, we and we we looked at um, at a um, like a private equity replication model in public markets. Like we actually went down the road of that, and I'm sure you guys maybe looked at that, and a, a lot of others have, and. I don't even remember why uh, why we didn't go through with it, to be honest. But it just it just wouldn't it just wouldn't work in terms well, of probably market. because on a risk adjusted basis it looks like shit. <laughs> it's at twenty five percent annualized <laughs> rate of return, to, uh, volatility compared yeah. to the other multi asset stuff. That you're there, there is a replicator in the U.S. Is. I think it was Valchunas or um, Corey that shared it, but there is a replication. ETF or mutual mm. fund out there, and it's down fifty five percent, right? Like, no, of that's, course, what's that, that's what the mark to market is telling marks, you right exactly. now. Um, that's why you don't hold it. All the benefits that exist right now at twelve times EBITDA um, it is is a problem when you're marking to market. The only benefit is yeah. that behavioral smoothing, which again we have to admit is a benefit for our monkey brains. So great, allow <laughs> allow managers of public funds to also do it and give their own investors the benefit. If it's so beneficial, <laughs> why aren't the regulators all over this and saying- Speaking yeah, of right. recursion, we feel like we've done this before. Incentivize, yeah. By the way, do you guys see Rob Carber's recursion uh, tweets? It was brilliant. Look it up. Oh. Look up Rob Carber, look up recursion. It's hilarious. Um, I did want to circle back with Rob just very quickly on the Asian multi-asset uh what what are you guys trading in that product and and what's the motivation because it sounds like you were drinking from the same philosophical well as we are with regards to being diversified and being global in nature and so there's a very active bet and an active view in launching an asian fund so i wondered if you, if you might just kind of describe some of the markets that you're trading in there and 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 what your view what your active view from a macro perspective is to to allow your 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 brain that much dissonance well i don't feel any dissonance about it actually (laughs) um so we looked at these so we're you know we've got i don't know about 20 countries what we call developed that would be you know hong kong china singapore south korea taiwan can't remember if Taiwan is, is developed or um, emerging. India, uh, and then we're in, uh, you know, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia. So these All markets, equity markets only. No, multi, oh. yeah, multi asset. So, so stocks and bonds. Yeah. No commodity we, contracts that are specific no to the Asian markets. No. Okay. No. Yeah. And. Um, 
Now, obviously, FX is a big component there, too. Uh, but the reason that we're doing it is because when you look, well, firstly, Asia is significant, in emerging Asia is significantly underrepresented in investor portfolios, we feel. So there's, there's that piece. They're difficult to access. The products are typically just long only equity. They're, you know, at least a percent. Um, you have to have boots on the ground if you want to be successful. And we get that question all the time. Don't you need to have an office in the, and we're like, no, like we don't need, we're trading futures, we're trading ETFs and we're trading FX. And, but the, the biggest reason is when you look at those markets, the like the correlations and the diversification, the internal correlations between those markets are very, very low. And so when you compare that to G7 um, or even broad emerging and G7, um, it, it's ripe for the type of volatility scaling and risk optimization that we do. And so those, those are the two main factors that drove that decision. Right. Interesting. Well, Rob, I know that you have a big night tonight, fellow Canadian. The Calgary yeah. Flames, I think, is uh, what are you doing tonight? Kat, before this call, she was like, oh, man, you look nervous. Like, are you nervous? I was like, I'm not nervous for the, the podcast. It's the <laughs> game I'm nervous for. <laughs> Uh, well, we're going up to our cabin, so we'll just I'll just be watching on TV. But I've been spending a lot of time at the Saddle Dome, that's for sure. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, All right, well, well, we'll let you uh, go to that and start getting ready, start getting real nervous as the uh, game approaches. But uh, thank you for joining us today. A uh, lot of interesting insights. Glad to see Canada or Canadians are moving towards something more thoughtful. Um, we should we should continue to figure out a a way to push these family offices closer and closer to to optimal portfolios. Maybe we could collaborate in some way. But uh, yeah, I hope so. Hey, man, thanks for keep having up me. the journey, and um, um, yeah, we'll have you back again sometime soon. Sounds good, guys. Thanks yeah, a lot. Thanks for joining us. Have a great long weekend. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestorsAll. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.